We're in James at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, of course, was a warning against making yourself a friend of the world. If you are a friend of the world, you're going to be not paying attention to God like you should. We then talked about not speaking evil against your brother. And so now we're down to verse 13 in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. First off, the idea of life being ephemeral, your best source for that, of course, is Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. The word that's translated vanity, at least in this translation, is the Hebrew hevel, which is the same as Adam and Eve's second son. And it's pronounced hevel. And what it means is insubstantial as in a puff of air. In the case of Adam and Eve, Cain was the firstborn. He was supposed to be the one that was going to redeem and was going to get them back into the garden and so forth. And he didn't get that job done. So what Ecclesiastes is saying is that your life is insubstantial, no more than a passing breath is the way to read that. It's translated vanity in most of your Bibles. The whole subject of Ecclesiastes is the transitory nature of life on this planet. So in Ecclesiastes, the catchphrase, in addition to vanity, is under the sun. It says over and over again that there's nothing new under the sun. And the idea there is under the sun is this world. Heaven is not under the sun. Under the sun is used as contradistinction to heaven which is eternal. So when James is talking about the same thing where people are boasting what they're going to do in the future, what James is doing is parenthetically if you will referring back to Ecclesiastes which says you have no assurance that you're going to wake up in the morning. It is entirely in God's hands so don't be making grandiose plans now, I'm going to have to say that and then full stop. That is not to say that you shouldn't be making plans. What it's saying is you shouldn't be making plans boastfully. The boastful part is key to what he's talking about here. So if you are making plans boastfully, what you're doing is you're making assumptions about what God's going to do. If, however, you are simply making business plans and planning to go here and go there with the understanding that your ability to carry out those plans is dependent upon God renewing your franchise the next morning, then there's nothing wrong with planning. Humble planning, however you want to describe it. But as I've said several times in this study, 
I don't really know why James wrote this because he's writing as if he is slapping people around who are in sin. He's writing very much the same tone as Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Paul's first letter to San Francisco, where you've got a city that is mired deep in sin. And so Paul slaps them around quite a bit. But he's dealing with a specific situation. This letter is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And I don't know what the situation is. But anyway, that's what is being talked about here. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is in Greek, it's not in Hebrew. The original underlying text is Greek, not Hebrew. But it's very much the same thing as vanity of vanities, which is you're just a passing breath of air. So 16 again. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, this is almost a subject change as he changes a sentence. And in that sense, it's very Proverbs-like. Because when you read Proverbs, they change subjects every other line. And so if you're writing Proverbs, that kind of a style is fairly normal. And as I say, this has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The idea here is, if you know what's right, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's straightforward. I don't have any specific comment about it, other than the fact that it seems just sort of flopped in there. All right, so now we're going down to chapter 5. And... If you go back up to chapter 1, he was really grumpy with rich people. And it's sort of like having warmed to his subject, he's back to flog it again. So chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I have no idea why he's writing that. Now, I'm going to finish reading a paragraph here, and then I'm going to come back and unpack it. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So let's start in the Torah. And where you want to be is in Deuteronomy 24, in verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The first three verses of chapter 5 
He rails against these folks. And then in verse 4, you get what he is talking about. And what he's talking about is that these guys have gotten rich by sharp practice. They have withheld the wages that are due to their laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud. Proverbs 28.8, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. Now, interest and profit, you have to understand what we're talking about here. There's no problem with interest or profit, except in a biblical society, you are not allowed to lend money to your brother at interest. You are allowed to lend money at interest to a stranger. In other words, a sojourner, but not to your brother. And profit, what we're talking about, is a discounted loan. We make a loan for $1,000. Jody comes to me and says, I want to borrow $1,000. And I say to Jody, okay, here's $900. You're going to pay me back $1,000. And that's what is called a discounted loan. It's another way of collecting interest. I can say, here's $1,000, you pay it back to me in a year at 10% interest. In which case, at the end of a year, I get $1,100. Alternatively, I can say, the loan is $1,000, but I'm giving you $900. You pay me back $1,000, and it's the same thing. Just a different way of collecting interest. And what it says here in the proverb is that one who gets wealth this way and parenthesis, not stated but assumed, is in violation of the Torah because the Torah says you can't do that to a fellow Israelite. And what it's saying is that this wealth that you have gathered, what you're doing is you're storing it up for the poor. What will happen to you at some point is you will lose it all and it will go to somebody else who God wants to have it. So this First part of chapter 5, which is sort of a bookend to what happened in chapter 1, where he's also taking a stripe off the rich. His assumption in both cases is those who have gotten rich have gotten so dishonestly. Now, full stop. One of the things that we do when we go through Proverbs is there are several Proverbs about wealth. And wealth, in some Proverbs, is a good thing, and in some Proverbs, is a bad thing. The poster child for that is Proverbs 10.15, which says, A rich man's wealth is a strong city. And wealth is a strong city in one hand, and it's a false sense of security in another. And the problem is situational. Under normal circumstances, yeah, wealth is a good thing. But under other circumstances, it won't save you from a Babylonian invasion, for example. So wealth is both ways. And what God does in the Torah over and over and over again is he motivates Israel with wealth. He says, if you walk in my covenant and obey my Torah, you're going to be wealthy. Your women won't be barren. Your animals will not miscarry. You'll have dew on your fields. You will be a lender and not a borrower. Over and over and over again, he says, things are really going to be good if you follow my Torah. 
And then there are two things that causes him to get chapped. Thing number one is when Israel goes into idol worship, which he regards as infidelity. Thing number two is when Israel goes into injustice and oppresses the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, who are the poster children for those who are helpless, which is a violation of Torah. So they may still be worshiping God, but they are treating each other poorly, and God gets really upset with that. Or they go into idolatry, idol worship, and forget him, and he gets upset with that. And one of the big reasons he gets upset with that is when you go into idol worship, the next thing that follows is violation of Torah and oppressing your neighbor. So wealth itself is not a problem. What is a problem is the arrogance that tends to come with wealth. One of the things that happens to people, and we all do it, it's pretty natural, is when you get wealth, you tend to look down upon those that don't have any. And you tend to think you're better than they are. And as you get the attitude of thinking you're better than someone, then it becomes justifiable in your mind to treat them poorly. So our rich guy here who is withholding the wages of those who mow his fields, he's up there in his big stone house and with his vast fields and so forth, and he's hiring these peons at a denarius a day, and he's feeling pretty superior to them. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to him. Well, I'm not going to pay him today. Maybe I'll pay him tomorrow, and maybe I'll give him 80% of what I owe him tomorrow. And what James is saying is the same thing that Torah is saying, is that's not allowable. And he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The day of slaughter we are talking about here is the day when you slaughter your animals. The no refrigeration, so you store your meat on the hoof. And the day of slaughter is when you're having a feast and you slaughter your animals in order to prepare for feast. So the day you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter is a play on words, if you will. Instead of fattening your body and enjoying the slaughter of your animals at a feast as I intend, what you've done is you've fattened your hearts, which is to say you have become arrogant. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The comment was that there are lots of reasons why someone who is being murdered in quotes, I mean, these guys may not actually be murderers, but there's reasons why people who are murdered in quotes might not resist. One is they may not realize the fraud. And another is they may not think that they have the ability. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
one of the things about all of the writers of the letters in the New Testament is they write their letters as if the coming of the Lord was imminent. When they're writing these letters, you get the very strong impression that they're not looking at 2,000 years. And James, in that sense, is like everybody else. Do with that whatever is good to you, but that's the way all of the writers that I know of in the New Testament treat the subject. The question was, what would be the venue where this thing is read? And it could be a synagogue, depending on the composition of the synagogue. Because what you have in the synagogues in the dispersion, and Rome is a classic example. In Rome, in the synagogue there, you've got four kinds of people. You've got Jews, who are not messianics, you know, just the black gangster hat and curlicue Jews, regular Jews. You've got messianic Jews like Paul. Paul is a messianic Jew. And every Shabbat, he goes to the synagogue, and that's where he starts whenever he comes to a new city. Then you've got proselytes, who are Gentiles who are in the process of becoming Jews. And at the end of that process, they'll be circumcised and laid hands on and so forth, and they will be Jews. And then the fourth group are Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit, but have no intention of converting to Judaism. And because you've got those four groups in virtually every synagogue, there's friction. And the letter to the Romans talks about that friction. That's the point of the letter to the Romans, is he's writing into that kind of a situation, and he's telling the Jews, hey, these guys are legit, they really do have the Holy Spirit, and you got the scriptures, so that's why they're there. And they're telling the Gentiles, calm down and don't be cocky. Don't look on your older brother Judah like you're something special. So the letter to the Romans is that kind of a letter. So when James is writing this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he is writing to Hebrews. And they are messianic Hebrews, which means that they're believers in Yeshua, much like Paul and James are both messianic Hebrews. The question becomes, are they a majority in the local synagogue or are they tolerated in the local synagogue or have they been thrown out of the synagogue and have formed house churches? And we don't know the answer to that. The comment was that moving from verse 6 to verse 7, the paragraph that ends in verse 6, he's going after rich people. Verse 7, he now says, be patient therefore, brothers. And you could read that as you are the ones who have been screwed over by the rich people. And just wait, things will even out. That is a perfectly legitimate interpretation. I didn't interpret it that way, but that doesn't mean it isn't right. So let's pick it up at 7 and go through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. 
You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Going back to Michael's comment, he could be speaking to those who have been oppressed by the wealthy, or it could be simply very much like what Paul writes, where he's saying, hang in there, and the Lord's coming back any time now. Be patient, just like a farmer is patient when he waits for the rain. Could be just sort of a general purpose exhortation. Reads very much like something Paul would write, very much like something John would write. Not that I'm saying it is any less valuable. It just seems to be a fairly common exhortation of the apostles to whoever they write to. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You have to understand something about Judaism to understand that. We got vows and oaths, and the Torah is very clear. They're okay. And if you make a vow or an oath, you may do so in the name of God. That's not a problem. The thing that happens is we all say things without thinking. And the idea here is if you make a vow or an oath without thinking, in other words, you're just sort of running your mouth and you say something without thinking, you're bound by it. Proverbs, all over it, says the default position of your mouth should be closed. It is all over Proverbs. So what James is saying here is watch your mouth, which is very much in line with Proverbs and all the wisdom literature. It also is speaking into the culture where if you say something that inadvertently binds you, the temple authorities will come and say, uh, wait a minute, you dedicated that to us, it's ours now. Very much part of the culture. So the path of wisdom, both in Proverbs and in James, is the default position of your mouth is closed, and if you decide to open it, you need to think about what you're going to say before you do so. And it is not a sin to swear an oath or make a vow, but it is definitely not a sin not to. And if you do, then it becomes a sin if you don't fulfill it. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And the idea here is, this is sort of general purpose instructions. One of the reasons why most churches, this one very much included, will have elders who will visit the sick and will have elders wandering the hall after service with the idea that if you need individual prayer, we will pray for you and lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray over whatever your condition is. That's where that comes from. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
This may go back to the binding and loosing in the Gospels, where Yeshua gives to his apostles, disciples, authority to establish a government in the church. And if you decide that anything is permitted, I agree with you. If you decide that something is forbidden, I will agree with you. That's what binding and loosing is. Halaha, how do you walk it out? And so what Yeshua does with his disciples is establishes a governance in the church where you guys get to make rules. And as long as your rules do not contravene Torah, God's okay with them. So verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Don't want to belabor this too much. All illness is caused by sin. Not necessarily the sin of the sick person. Ding, 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 ding. The fact that there's sickness and disease in the world is a function of sin. However, the fact that someone is sick doesn't mean he's the one that did the sinning. Maybe something entirely separate from him. Having said that, the idea of praying for forgiveness of sins as part of the healing process is perfectly sound. The way I would describe it, you may not be the one who sinned when you're sick, but that's a place to start. If you're sick, start with you and see if you've got some problem that you need to get cleared up besides being sick. Having done that, having looked at yourself and cleared your own deck, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's why you're sick. And when I say sin, I'm talking about the fallen condition of humanity. I am not necessarily talking about proximate sin where you've done something wrong and then you get struck down with boils. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's why I've said it very clearly and very carefully. The sin that causes illness may not be the sin of the one who is ill. It may be the sin of a fallen world. I am not one who believes that if you're sick, you're some kind of a miserable sinner and it's all your fault. That is not correct. I do not believe that. But back to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. And that, of course, is scriptural, First Kings. And the point is that Elijah's prayer was the thing that caused a three-and-a-half-year drought in Israel. And at the end of the day, when he'd taken care of the prophets of Baal, he let up and the rain started again. Now, the other part of that is God told him after three and a half years, enough, let's get this sorted out. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The idea of being in a community or a congregation is very important because the example of other people 
is good, but also social pressure will keep you from a multitude of sins. It's like sort of the old joke, the difference between a Lutheran minister and a Baptist pastor. A Lutheran minister will say hi to you in a liquor store. There's a point to that. The culture of the Baptist, Southern Baptist, I mean, not all Baptists are that way. The culture is, we don't drink. So that social pressure helps keep people out of the liquor stores. That's the whole purpose of that little joke. Of course, the other part of that is we're all sinners and we all occasionally backslide. That's also the case too. But the point is, this guy doesn't believe he should be there and is embarrassed and that will very often keep him out of those places. So what James is saying here is if anyone wanders, someone should bring him back. And when you do bring him back, know that you have saved his soul from death because the ultimate end of sin is death. And so he's saying, stay in community. Talk to each other. Encourage each other. Watch over each other. I was listening to Ron Dart today. And Ron Dart I like very much. He was talking about the parable of the guy that owed a ruler some number of talents and he couldn't pay it. And he threw himself on the mercy of the ruler and said, I can't pay this. And the ruler forgave the debt. Didn't even say, you got more time, he just forgave the debt. And this guy then turns around and goes to somebody who owes him a small amount and chokes him and says, you got to give me your, repay me now. And the guy, oh, please. And the conversation is exactly the same. Both debtors, when confronted with their debt, say exactly the same thing. The big debt got forgiven, the small debt does not. The thing that's interesting here, isn't it, Yeshua's parable, is the ruler who forgave the big debt goes and grabs this guy, reinstates the debt, and then sells him into slavery, him and his family, until it gets paid off. And the point that Dart was making is this guy had been forgiven a great debt. He then does not have forgiveness of his brother. The reaction of the big creditor is, oh, you didn't get a heart change when I forgave you. Therefore, the debt is going to be reinstated and you're back in the debt that you were before we started. Her question was, can you lose your salvation? And the parable that Dart tells is someone who has had his sins forgiven, does not forgive his brother, and then the master turns around and says, okay, you won't forgive your brother? All that stuff I forgave you, back on you. Ron Dart sort of went there. He said that this guy, upon being forgiven, did not have a heart change. It also says, if you don't forgive your brother, your father won't forgive you. All sorts of passages of scripture there that are warnings. Et ta